Good afternoon. All right, as you know, in AWS, one of our guiding principles is developer choice. We want you to pick the right tool for the job. In database services, this means purpose-built engines. We want you to be able to pick the engine that works best for the task you have at hand. Rather than try to jam everything into one database to rule them all, we think you'll get better features, performance, and value. I'm Andrew Certain. I'm a senior principal engineer in database services, and I'm here to talk about Amazon Quantum Ledger Database. So the question is, what's the purpose of a ledger? So this is from our landing page. It says what the purpose is. We maintain a complete and verifiable history of all your data. So that's what I'm going to talk about. And first, I'm going to talk about complete. So here's a 19th century ledger database. Um, the important thing here is that you record entries about what happened, transactions that happened between companies, say, and then you summarize the results at the bottom. Right? So the word record comes from recording something. right? So we recorded an event, and then we summarized what happened. OK, so here's the first computer with the disk drive. This is the IBM RAMAC computer. RAMAC stands for Random Access Method of Accounting and Control. And so you might think that because it has accounting in the name that this was a ledger database. right? And I'm going to talk to you why not, and then what has happened since then. So part of the why not story is these big cases that you see, these are IBM 350 disk drives. They store 5 million characters each. Um, you might think that means 5 megabytes. Uh, there are only 6-bit characters, so it's actually only 3 and 3 quarters megabytes. It's a little bit hard to see in this picture, but um, inside this cylinder here, there are 50 24-inch platters, double-sided. So that means you have 5,000 characters on each side. There are 100 tracks. I didn't draw them all. Um, you get 50 characters per track. So that's 3,000 bits per track. Tracks are about 600 millimeters in circumference, so five bits per linear millimeter. Because of the way circles work and because of how far the tracks are apart, you got three bits for every square millimeter. OK, that doesn't sound so great. With a sharp pencil and a piece of paper, you can get more information in a square millimeter than three bits. On the other hand, it was the very first disk drive. Right? In college, actually, my first job was working for a guy by the name of Norm Vogel. He worked on the heads for these disk drives. And as you might know, modern disk drives, the platter spinning around, it creates airflow. And the disk head actually is a little airplane wing. And it flies on that moving air using the Bernoulli effect. So they knew that this could work at IBM in 1956. They had built a Bernoulli head, but they just couldn't get it to work on the deadline. And so they had to use a head that used compressed air to force the air out of the head to keep the, the head above the, the track surface. Anyway, these things cost about $35,000 each. So that's about a penny per byte. Um, in 2019 dollars, that's about 10 times as much, so 10 cents a byte. OK, so all you who design applications out there, think about what you might have to do differently if it costs you 10 cents a byte to store your data. Um, maybe we can take it a little bit easier on the people who only use two-digit years. Um, but this was a problem, right? 
you couldn't store the complete records anymore of your transactions. You could only store the summaries. Uh, database people still call them records, but they're really not the records, right? All right. Um, as an example, let's imagine that you want to transfer $40 from one account to another. So you read the data from the table, and SQL wasn't actually invented in 1956, but hopefully you'll grant me a little bit of poetic license here. So first you read the account balance. You check, is there $40 in the account? Is there enough money in the account? You compute the new balance. Then you read the next uh, account's balance, because you're going to need to update it, compute a new balance. And then you update the tables with the new balance, right? And note that these operations are done directly against the tables, right? So database have locks to make sure that there's not different people modifying it at the same time. Nowadays, they might use snapshot isolation, but the updates are really going directly against the tables first. And then you commit it, and you're done. So the problem is, let's say a year from now, somebody comes and says, hey, why is the account balance what it was? That information is not in the database. Presumably there are records somewhere, um, maybe 1956 on paper tape or something, uh, but you can't go to the database to get that information. Now things have changed in the last 60 years. Today you can buy this on Amazon. Um, if you remember, the 350 disk drive had three bits per square millimeter. This has over two billion bits per square millimeter. That costs 10 cents per byte in 2019 dollars. This costs two cents per gigabyte. Okay, so storage is more than a billion times cheaper. And since it's so much cheaper, the value threshold for what's worth storing has changed a lot. And so people are no longer satisfied with just storing the summaries in the database. They want to know what happened, right? And so lots of things have happened over time to make that possible. The most obvious thing is, hey, let's put another table in the database. We'll store the transactions there. So going through our example again, we read the balance. We make sure that there's enough money in. We compute the new thing. We read the balance of the other account. We update the, the, the balances, just like before. And then we also insert a new row into this transactions table, right? OK, so now when you come back a year later and you say, hey, what happened on you know, December 4th, 2019? It's in the database, so that's great. The problem is it's all up to the developer, right? So either the developer has to remember to write this code in their application code, or we have stored procedures, or we have triggers. But the fact that these things are updated in parallel means that they can get out of sync. And while this is a pretty simple example, these audit tables can get pretty complicated. They can take up a lot of storage in your database. They can impact performance. And so we wanted to do something different. So if we go back to our 19th century database, the important thing was you journal the transactions first, and then you update the summaries. So this is a slide that I showed last year at reInvent about QLDB. QLDB is built the same way. First you update the journal, and then those changes are reflected in the summaries. Okay, so if we take our 
original example. In QLDB, the same thing happens at first. You read the balance. You make sure that there's enough money in the account. You read the other balance. Now, you still issue these SQL statements, or in our case, particle. I'll talk about that in a minute, which, which set the new values. But you'll notice these values don't go directly against the table. They're stored ephemerally. Then when commit is called, the transaction is submitted to the journal, and the journal decides whether to accept it. If the transaction is still legitimate, if it's serializable, there's been no interfering transactions, it accepts it. So we write it to the journal. And only then are the table balances updated. OK, so here's what I mean by complete. Right? QLDB, the journal, is the complete record of everything that happened in your database. You can't update any data without it going through the journal. It's just how the system's built. It's also where the word quantum comes in. I know we've taken a lot of grief for the word quantum. People want to know what it has to do with quantum computing. It has nothing to do with quantum computing. Quantum has to do with indivisible state change, right? So each record in our journal is the complete record of a transaction. It's sort of like the internal transaction log of most databases, except that in database transaction logs, and I'll talk even more about this later, the transactions are sort of smeared among the log. They're in lots of different places. Um, you have to piece them together after the fact. So the QLDB journal contains all the parts of the transactions together, so they're easier to process. It contains only committed transactions, so you don't have to worry about rollbacks. And it's externalized, right? Most database uh, transaction logs, you have to get internal APIs to use them that can change. We have a first-class external API. All right. I'm going to take a little detour about event-based systems um, and then tie it back to QLDB. I'm sure you've heard a lot about event-based systems. In December 2013, Jay Kreps wrote this blog post called The Log. It's got a fairly long subtitle, What Every Software Engineer Should Know About Real-Time Data's Underlying Abstraction. It's a fantastic blog post. I highly recommend you read it if you haven't already. And in these event-based systems, the idea is you get a log of everything that's happened, you capture just the facts, and then you spread it out to lots of different places. Again, I think it's super important, lots of great patterns here. But you'll see on my picture here, the left-hand side, some of those events are being generated by databases, right? So we haven't gotten rid of databases. We've just sort of said, okay, once you've decided what the truth is over here, we'll put it in a log. More recently, some people have talked about using these same event-based ideas to do distributed transactions. So Martin Kleppman and others just wrote this uh, article in ACMQ about how you can do distributed, scalable transactions using this event processing model. And they actually talk about how you might do a bank transfer. And in their model, you issue events like, hey, I have an intention to transfer this money. So that's sort of like the authorization on your credit card, right? And then later, you um, actually process the transfer once you've uh, made sure that the constraints have been satisfied. And it's not a terrible idea. Uh, the problem is, look at the different consumers we have, right? So we have all these heterogeneous consumers. And if you have the transaction logic in every single one of them, there's a lot of opportunity to get things wrong, 
right? So each one of them has to build up state about these intended transactions and what's gonna happen. Somebody has to detect if a timeout happened and send a message saying, hey, this thing didn't happen. Um, this undo logic can get really tricky and it has to be implemented faithfully by everybody. Again, talking about database transaction logs, they're the same way, right? So you record a bunch of things and sometimes you have an abort or rollback and somebody's gotta go and clean things up. And if you have a single code base that's processing these things and making sure that they're doing it correctly, seems reasonable, right? The problem is if you don't. And so I think these externalized logs are great for recording events that happened, like this software was just deployed to this container, or this customer just searched for this item. That's where the source of truth is sort of out there in the world. But sometimes the source of truth is the database, right? So how much money I have, I mean, you could say the source of truth is in a bunch of paper trail, but at some level, the source of truth for how much money I have in my database is stored in the bank's computer. This database is responsible for checking these constraints, like my balance didn't go below zero, like concurrent operations do the right thing. And so in QLDB, we made a different decision than these other systems. The journal is responsible for concurrency control. And I'm not gonna go super deep on this, but I just wanted to touch on it. Okay, so going back to our example, let's say we got to this step where we've computed the new balance, and some other transaction sneaks in, right? So let's say the customer went in and deposited $50, right? So we have this new transaction that snuck in. Okay, now the table gets updated with the new value, but we're in trouble, right? Because we didn't know about that. So if we naively push our changes to the journal here, we're gonna get the wrong answer. And a lot of systems do it this way. They rely on the log or the journal to sequence things, but not for correctness. So Hyperledger Fabric is an example. Um, Tango, which is a data, distributed data structure from Microsoft Research. The log is just responsible for sequencing things. And then the consumers are responsible for determining whether or not the, the things on the log were legitimate. As I said before, that's great if you have a homogeneous consumer base, but if you have a heterogeneous consumer base, it gets tricky. So QLDB is different. We build up this ephemeral transaction state and it doesn't just contain the writes. It also contains information about all the reads you did. Then when you submit it to the journal, the journal is responsible for saying, hey, wait a second, have I admitted any transactions that are gonna interfere with these reads? And if so, it rejects it. So customers don't have to figure this out, the journal takes care of it. Okay, a little more history. Um, around the same time as the Krebs post in EC2, we were looking to move off relational databases and we decided to build this system with the externalized transaction log and optimistic concurrency control built into the journal. So we did, it's running, um, big parts of the EC2 control plane and has been for years. But it was a tool, it wasn't a service. And um, it takes a lot more to build an AWS service as you can imagine. And so we struggled a lot with how to externalize this because we, we really don't like investing in things just for us. We feel like, hey, if things are useful for us, they're gonna be useful for you. But on the other hand, we have to really convince ourselves that that's true. 
And then, as you know, in AWS, we work backwards from the customer, right? So we write a press release for every product before we start working on it. We spent a year working on the press release for QLDB, okay? We had found all these advantages in EC2 and other internal systems that used it with having this complete record of every transaction. We built it really for this heterogeneous replication, but it came in handy in so many ways, right? No more, hey, let's restore this database backup and try to compare rows or you know, look at application logs. It was all just right there. But we ultimately decided that complete was not enough to build a brand new product. So what changed? Blockchain. Um, I love this picture. I think it captures so much about what's great about blockchain and what's totally misleading about it, right? So um, if you believe this picture, you know, it's great for transportation and computers and supply chain and money. Um, it does capture what I think is one of the most important things is that these things are chained together. Uh, it totally skips over the actual thing that the Bitcoin paper invented which was an incentive structure and distributed trust, right? Um, so if this picture's confused, so were lots of other people. Uh, this is from a NIST technical report trying to explain to people whether they should use blockchain and why and how to think about these things. People were having a really hard time. They were excited about blockchain. They were excited about having this complete history that you could prove cryptographically. And from our standpoint, that was great that people started thinking about this and started wanting it more. And as we talked to more and more customers who are coming to us saying, hey, we really need help figuring out how to use blockchain. Like, we, we want this history. We want this verifiability. Blockchain seems really complicated. What can you do for us? What we realized is what they mostly wanted was this reliable way to record and audit changes to data and they wanted it easily externalized. So they were looking at blockchain, but really struggling with this complexity. So we already had this journal-first database, and we realized that we could add the pieces of blockchain that we thought were important to it. And so this is the other part of QLDB, verifiable. Okay, so what does that mean? This is the uh, AWS console page for QLDB ledgers. How many people have seen this before? Couple, the thing you probably notice is this. Um, so we just have announced that we're going into private preview for streaming, so you can get your uh, transactions sent to Kinesis. We would really like you to experiment with this, give us feedback on whether the partition keys are right, how we're splitting the data up, the format. So if you're interested in getting in on the streams preview, please email QL to be outbound. For everybody else, you might want to start with the Getting Started Guide. This vehicle registration ledger is part of the Getting Started experience, so you can replay any of my talk with your own queries in your own ledger. All right, so we select the vehicle registration ledger. We click Get Digest, and we get this thing. And what is this thing? So the most important part here is this digest. It's this weird string of characters. What is that? Okay, so it turns out this is a base64 encoded number. Here it is in hex. It's 32 bytes. Um, these are all SHA-256 output values. 
I'll talk a little bit more about SHA-256 later. Um, the important thing is that it's a big number, and I don't want to write it out the whole time. So any time during my talk, if you see two hex digits and then an ellipsis, that means a SHA-256 output value. Okay, now before talking more about QLDB, I want to give you an example from Bitcoin. All right, so let's imagine that you paid me some Bitcoin two weeks ago to deliver something to you, and I didn't deliver it. So you come to me and you say, hey, where's my stuff? And I say, I don't know what you're talking about. You never paid me. So some of you probably know that Bitcoin is made of transactions and blocks, and these blocks are chained together. But what are we actually proving in Bitcoin? So here's the basic shape of a Bitcoin transaction. So it says, hey, I want to transfer some amount of Bitcoin from this wallet to this other wallet. And then there's a signature. The signature proves that the holder of the wallet actually submitted this transaction. OK, so you print out these bytes, and you show me this piece of paper. And I'm like, uh-huh. So you just type that in. I don't believe you. So what do you really need to prove? And what I would say is you need to show two things. First, you need to prove that your transaction is actually part of the Bitcoin block. And then you need to prove that that block is part of the Bitcoin chain. And these two are very intertwined. And for those of you who know a lot about Bitcoin, it probably seems a little bit silly to try to talk, think of them separately. But um, I'll just ask you to bear with me. Note two things, though. We are not talking about whether the transaction was actually authorized by you. That's what the signature is about. That's about public key encryption. Not talking about that. It's also not about whether or not you actually had enough Bitcoin in your wallet for this transaction to be valid. That's what the Bitcoin nodes are doing. That's part of the distributed trust of Bitcoin. That's also not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is integrity, that the bytes that you're showing me were actually recorded on the blockchain. OK. First step, prove that your transaction is part of a Bitcoin block. All right, so we have our transactions. We split them out. Here's some hash values. OK, what do these hash values mean? All right, this isn't a Bitcoin transaction. This is a document from our Getting Started Guide. So if you take this document and you run it through SHA-256, you get this value. So what does that mean? So SHA-256 is a cryptographic hash function. These functions have some really important properties. One of the most important is, just given the value, it is computationally infeasible to find a document that hashes to that value. So if I give you a value and a document that hashes that value, as far as we know, the only way for you to have come up with that value is to actually have had the document. Right? It's also really hard if you have a document to find another document with the same hash value. And then if you make small changes to the document, like here, let's say we just change you know, the 0.25 to 0.24, it completely changes the hash value. right? So small changes result in big changes to the hash value. OK, so we have our transactions. They have hash values. Um, Bitcoin then builds a Merkle tree. A Merkle tree is just a binary tree of hash values. So what you do is you take the hash values, and you combine them together. And basically what you do is you take the first hash value, and you take those bytes, and you jam them next to the bytes for the second hash value. 
and then you take the hash of the result, okay? So we do this all the way up, and we have a tree, and this is called the Merkle tree root. All right, now if anything changes in any transaction, this number is gonna change completely, right? So if I change a tiny bit of, say, transaction three, then the hash value of that is gonna change completely, which means the parent hash is gonna change completely, which means the root is gonna change completely. Also realize these two things are separate. The transactions are the data, and the Merkle tree is just helping us verify the integrity of the data. In Bitcoin, for example, we just store the transactions and the root of the Merkle tree in each block. So now to verify the integrity of any one transaction, you need all the transactions. And this is the cryptographic proof, is that the only way to come up with that number, that Merkle tree root, is to have all the same inputs and all the same operations. In most Merkle tree applications, you store the tree nodes, which allows you to make a different kind of integrity proof rather than just starting with all of the inputs. For example, if we want to prove the integrity of transaction two here, we have to take the sibling hash, so we don't need the transaction one, we just need its hash, and we compute the parent, and then we take the sibling of the parent, I guess that'd be the uncle, and we compute the grandparent. So this is how all of these proofs work, is that you have some sort of an input value, and your goal is to see if the output value is the same. And then these are the other inputs to the proof. So this is really important for understanding how verifiability works in QLDB, so I'm gonna walk through it again. All right, we wanna prove that transaction two is part of this Merkle tree with root 9f. So the first thing we do is take the sibling, hash them together, get this intermediate result H1. We take that intermediate result, we hash it with the sibling, we get this result H2, and we check and make sure that H2 is the same, okay? Having done that, we've proved that none of the bits in transaction two have changed since that Merkle tree root was generated. All right, so you come back to me again. You say, okay, I've got this block, and I got this Merkle tree, and look, I can prove that this transaction is part of this block with this Merkle tree. Again, I'm like, so what? You just computed a block. You could have gotten that anywhere. So that's the second half, is you have to prove that this block is actually part of the chain. The things I'm about to tell you about Bitcoin are not strictly true. Um, they are true enough. Uh, if you know a lot about how this works, you will be able to see where I am changing things slightly. Um, but they're true in spirit, and they're helpful for explaining how things work. So every Bitcoin block has this block hash. And the way the block hash is computed is you take the block hash of the previous block and the root of the Merkle tree, and you hash them together and you get a result. So here, for example, we take 9f, and we concatenate it with 4.3, and we get this result. And so on. So now we have a different kind of proof. And again, bear with me for a second. I'm going to say r instead of 9f for reasons that hopefully will become clear. So we have some value, and we want to prove that it's the Merkle tree root of this block. So again, we take that value, and we combine it with the previous hash. And then we take the resulting value and we combine it with the root of the Merkle tree in the next block, 
and we check and make sure things are equal. Okay, so we had this proof, and now this transaction was actually hopefully part of this block, so now we can combine the proofs. And the point is that this result of the first proof is actually the input to the next one. Okay, I'm, here it is in pictures, right? So the full proof that this transaction is part of the chain is you start with the 8.2 hash and you combine them iteratively with these, all these other hashes and then you check at the end if you get the right result, all right? This is what all cryptographic proofs of integrity look like. You start with a value, you iteratively apply a bunch of hashes with other values, and you check and make sure that the result is the same. And again, because of the properties of these uh, hash functions, we believe the only way for that computation to work out is if the bits are unchanged. All right, so now you come to me and you're like, okay, I got it finally done. Like, here's my big proof. And I say, so what? Right, and I think this is one thing we have to keep in mind as engineers is often we feel like, oh well, if we solve the technical problem, that solves the, you know, that solves the entire problem. And the truth of the matter is, okay, so you gave me some money and I still didn't ship it, like what are you gonna do, right? And like that's what courts are for and you know, we have a lot of systems in the real world to deal with this. And I think you know, blockchain and QLDB have really important roles to play. But again, as technologies, we have to make sure we don't confuse the pro solving a technology problem with solving the real world problem. Okay, so that's blockchain integrity. What about QLDB? So this is the QLDB verification page. It's got a bunch of fields on it. Before I go into those fields, I just wanna talk quickly about the QLDB block structure. It's very similar to the Bitcoin block structure. There's a Merkle tree covering all the data in the block and this time I'm not fudging anything. Uh, the root of that tree and the previous block hash form the current block hash. And you may note that the hash values in the first block, they're both the same. I'll come back to that later. Okay, so now we wanna verify a document or actually a revision to a document. In QLDB, you have documents with identifiers and you make updates to them. Each time you get an update, there's a revision. The revisions are recorded in the journal. So we wanna prove that the revision at this block address has not been tampered with. You also need the digest value, obviously. What is our goal number? And then you have this thing called digest tip address. So what is that? So in general, in QLDB, we talk about block addresses. So a block address identifies a block in QLDB. It has two components. A strand identifier, that identifies which chain the block is in. Today, all QLDB ledgers have a single strand, but we anticipate them having multiple strands in the future. And then there's a sequence number which tells you where in the strand it is. So it's pretty obvious why when you wanna verify a document, you have to supply the block address of where the document is, right? Obviously the proof for a document in this block is gonna be different from a proof in the document in this block. What might not be quite so obvious is why you need this digest tip address. That address tells us what the end of the chain was when you retrieved your digest. So, for example, if you generated a digest with this chain, and then you added a couple more blocks and generated another digest, those two digests are gonna be different, so the proofs are gonna to have to be different. 
All right. We've loaded up all of our fields. We push verify. Green check. All right. So what happened there? Did Amazon just put up a green check mark and tell you everything's good? Um, no. So to tell you how it worked, let's expand this proof hash. And again, you can do all this uh, when you get home. So here's what it expands into. So um, first, we have a hash of the revision. So it looks like this. Then we have all these proof hashes, bunch of SHA-256 output values. And finally, we have these two digests that match. And hopefully, that sounds familiar to some people. Same thing we did here. So going back to the Bitcoin example, it's the same thing, right? We have a value we want to verify. We have a bunch of sibling SHA-256 hashes. And we have an output that we need to check matches what was stored before. The revision hash is what we want to verify. We iterate through the proof hashes. And we check, make sure the answer matches. So you don't have to take our word for this is what's happening. The code is running in your browser. Right? This isn't exactly the JavaScript code running in your browser. Um, I had to reorder a couple of lines and shorten some names so it would fit on the slide, but it's very, very close. This is the line that's doing all the work. Um, very simple, it takes the binary document hash, which is the hash of the revision, passes that to a reduce function with all the proof hashes, which just iteratively uh, calls each hash in turn with the result with join hashes. Here's the join hashes method. It has three sections. I'll talk about this one more later, but if that one of the hashes is empty, you just return the other one. Then we need to concatenate the hashes. And if you remember back to the Bitcoin proof, when you're iterating through the hashes, sometimes you would concatenate on the left, and sometimes you concatenate on the right. Uh, we made a slightly different decision in QLDB, and we decided to define our concatenation operator to sort the hashes first. So it didn't matter if you're a left sibling or a right sibling. Um, it's not a huge deal, but it does mean that our proofs are just a list of hashes. They don't have left, right, plus hash. And then you take the SHA, the concatenated hashes, and you return the result. Okay, so that's really what's happening. This runs in your browser. If you get a green check, that function passed. All right? You can run this in any language you want. Um, and so people ask, hey, don't you have to trust AWS if you're trusting QLDB? Like, what are you really trusting? And the answer is no. So you do have to trust us to faithfully execute your particle, enforce your permissions. This is true for any database you're running, right? It is trust but verify. So the particle statements are part of the blocks. They're hashed as well. So after you execute your transactions, you can download all of the blocks. You can check that the SQL statements were what you thought they were. You can check that the results were what you thought they were. And then if you get a digest, you know for sure that any time in the future when you come back and say, hey, give me those blocks, they can't have changed, okay? We are not trying to solve the blockchain problem of distributed trust. We're trying to solve the database problem of verifiable integrity, where integrity means that the data has not been altered. All right, so that's the main part of my talk, uh, complete and verifiable. I still have a fair amount of time left, so 
I'm going to cover a few sort of short topics. I'm not going to go into a lot of detail, so there'll probably be some questions you know, left afterwards. Um, hopefully, it uh, excites you a little bit about all the cool things we've done in QLDB. All right, so you remember when I showed you this picture? Um, I didn't exactly lie. I was talking a little vaguely. Um, I sort of implied that the verification proofs ran along the chain, just like in Bitcoin. So, you know, if you wanted to prove this uh, block, you'd use these hashes and you'd check it against the end here. Um, it's probably okay if you have eight blocks in your journal. Uh, I have my sites for QLDB set a little bit higher. What if you have a billion blocks in your journal and you want to do a proof? Uh, you clearly do not want to do a billion operations. So in addition to the chaining, we've also built a Merkle tree on top of the log. So now, if I want to verify a document in this, trans uh, in this transaction, first I need the block hash from the previous block to compute the, the block hash for this block. And then I need the sibling hash for the leaf node in the Merkle tree. So note here that because of the chain running through the nodes in the Merkle tree, it's not exactly a tree. It's this sort of interesting combination data structure. So for example, if I wanted to prove something in this block instead, first I would need the C2 hash to compute the block hash one zero. And then I'd need it, whoop, and then I'd need it again to compute the DE, right? So it's not exactly a tree, it's not exactly a chain, it's a little combination of both of them. All right, so going back to the original case, after I get out of the chain part of the tree, it's just a normal Merkle tree, I get the sibling nodes, and I check to make sure that it matches the root. Okay, so now we have this Merkle tree. How do you maintain it? So as you add transactions, you can ask for a digest at any time. So what do we do? If you do a Google search for Merkle tree, all of the examples you find will have exactly eight nodes. Why? Four is not interesting, 16 is hard to draw, and eight is a power of two. Um, now, if we are gonna update continuously, obviously we can't just have uh, it defined for powers of two. So what do we do if we have six nodes? First step's pretty easy, pairwise combine. The left side's pretty easy too, but then what? And now before telling you what QLDB does, I'm gonna look at some other systems. So for example, Bitcoin. Bitcoin says that as you're building up the tree, at any level where you have an odd number of nodes, you just duplicate the last hash. So this is the tree you would get. Um, I mean, it works. Uh, there's one small drawback, which is you can't tell the difference between a block with an odd number of nodes and a block with an even number of nodes where the last two transactions have the same hash. It's not a big deal for Bitcoin. Um, you can't have you know, the same transactions twice in a valid Bitcoin block. They do have a check to make sure that the last two transactions don't hash the same thing. Whatever, it's fine. Um, it only gets computed once though, it's static. It's, you know, updating this is gonna be a little bit tricky. There's also another project which is very similar to QLDB, which is Google's Certificate Transparency Project. 
Um, they have some really interesting um, web pages about consistency proofs and Merkle tree proofs, uh, which I encourage you to go look at if you're interested. They also have a log with a Merkle tree on top. Um, it's not static, um, but they do batch updates. So they're not trying to add nodes once at a time, but they add nodes in batch. Um, what they do is they just sort of do the obvious thing that you would do if you had an unbalanced binary tree, which is uh, they promote things up. Uh, again, that works. Um, for us, though, we really want to add nodes continuously, and the root of the Merkle tree has to be valid at every single time you add a single node, and we want to keep as little state and recompute as few things as possible. So what do we do? So remember this JavaScript code? Um, so I said that if either hash is empty, then the result is the other hash. It's a little bit weird. It's not the hash of the other hash, right? It's just the other hash. This is an identity operator. And so in QLDB, we actually define the Merkle tree to be infinitely tall and infinitely wide at all times. And any hash beyond the end of the tip is empty. And so this makes it really easy to do intermediate computations. Um, it lets us keep login storage for the Merkle tree updates and do um, login over two uh, computations on average and always have an update digest. Uh, it also allows us to efficiently go back in time so that if, you know, your, uh, if your current chain has a lot of blocks in it but you have a digest from long before and now we have to recreate what that digest was in order to build a proof, it's, it's very efficient. Um, the empty is also why those first two values are the same. Uh, there's an implicit empty for the previous hash of the first block. All right, so that's pretty cool. Um, a couple things not about cryptography. So first, ion. Um, here's a query you can run against your vehicle registration database. Uh, this QL committed uh, lets you get at the metadata. So you run this query. You get this result back, and you click on this view as ion button. And so then you get this document. It looks like JSON. It's not quite JSON. It's ion. And I know that this has been a source of confusion and frustration for some people who've used QLDB. And obviously, we didn't just do that for no reason, right? There's a couple reasons that I want to talk about. One is richer data types. We just need a timestamp. Like, we, we just can't operate a database without a timestamp. Um, more subtly, though, uh, we have to talk about hashing. So recall how changing this one bit made the hash different. And this is really important, right? Because if I say, here's my document, and is it in the journal, and there's something different, you want to know that it's different. But what if this is the difference? What if you added a leading zero? What about trailing zeros? Probably, because it's precision. What about the order of fields? What about timestamps without a time zone versus UTC? So if we had decided to just go with JSON, we still would have had to define what it meant for two things to hash to the same value. Right? Um, we'd have to define the rules. We'd have to write this code. And that's really what's holding people back, mostly, is getting this hash thing right. With ION, the spec's already written. We have libraries in a bunch of languages. It's open source. You're welcome to contribute. 
Um, but that's really why we chose Ion. I'm super excited about it. I think you'll see more and more Ion being used in Amazon products. Ion is closely tied to Particle. Um, so Particle is the SQL variant that we use. So if we remember the re relational data model, one of the great things when the relational data model was invented was that developers no longer had to decide whether this data was subordinate to that data or figure out in advance what the access patterns were. Right? So I don't have to decide, you know, are addresses subordinate to customers or orders or um, whatever. Everything's just a top-level object, and then we can use these relational queries to put things together. Super awesome. Unfortunately, there's an impedance mismatch with modern programming languages that have these rich data structures. Um, they often want flexible schema. They often want nested objects. And so we have document databases, which um, are super valuable, I think. I really like them. Um, we wanted QLDB to store documents, but we did not want to invent another API out of whole cloth. Fortunately, we had this language called Particle, um, it's been in development for many years. It was designed to be the minimal set of extensions to SQL for open and nested content. And that's really what documents are, right? Open and nested. It's currently being used in these Amazon products. Um, Particle uh, came from SQL++, which is supported by Couchbase. We're really hoping, again, that this becomes more and more common. Why am I excited about Particle? All right, so we have this document. You don't need to uh, understand the details, but I'm going to pull out a couple fields. Okay, so let's say we have a customer ID, and then we have this array of order items, right? So this is a nested array, and it's got a whole bunch of items. And normally, if you had a relational database, these would be two tables, right? You'd have an order table and an order items table, and each order item would have a foreign key reference into the orders table. And so if you wanted to do things with them, you'd do joins. And Particle really bridges that gap. So you still write things as if they were a join, right? So that o.items as oi says, hey, this items field is really a nested structure. Treat it like a table. And now let's iterate through every single one just like you had SQL. So super excited about Particle. Um, I will also touch briefly on the multi-AZ that uh, we promised in the um, uh, abstract to this talk. All right, so recall that I said we collected the state for a transaction ephemerally. So here is my um, professional drawing of what QLDB looks like. Um, so like any AWS service, you have applications, and they're talking to a load balancer, and the load balancer goes to some servers. Now, because we're accumulating all this state for the transactions, and that state is responsible for the concurrency control, right? So like if I do a bunch of reads, and then I lose that state, and then I do a write, and I commit that transaction to the journal, we're going to have problems, right? So behind the front set of servers, transactions are sticky to a particular uh, server behind it. OK, so here we go. What this means is if, you know, if we lose a server, you lose that transaction, but you don't lose anything else, right? The journal that we're built on has been uh, in production in Amazon for over five years. It's at the core of Kinesis. It's at the core of Dynamo Streams. 
Um, it's at the core of the S3 key map. So it is highly available, highly durable, multi-AZ. We aren't taking responsibility for the durability. We're just taking responsibility for maintaining this transactional state. Um, and so one question you might have is, well, okay, like you said, if, if I maintain that state and I send a bunch of reads and then something weird happens and my next operations go to some other server for some reason, then aren't you gonna have a problem? How do you make sure that you haven't lost anything? And so this is a, another part of the QLDB API that if you're using the raw API can be a bit of a challenge, so I highly encourage you to use the higher level APIs. But in case you wanna try, this is how it works, is that we actually are hashing all the statements together. So we start with the transaction ID, and then we take every statement and we hash it together and iteratively hash it together to get a digest of the whole transaction. And then when the client sends commit across, it sends that digest across. The server, meanwhile, is doing exactly the same thing in parallel and is computing another digest. So if the server has missed some operations or done them out of order or done them twice, the digest will not match and the transaction won't commit. And so that's another way that we ensure integrity. Okay. Last thing I'll leave you with. Here's our logo. You know it's a database, right? How do you know it's a database? Because of the oil drum, right? Um, why is the oil drum the universal symbol for database? And if we go back to our picture, you get a hint, right? Again, it's a little hard to see here, but you can imagine 50 24-inch platters stacked up into a cylinder. It looks a lot like an oil drum. All right, thank you very much.